Welcome to Switch the Envelope presents Cinovations Special Effects Makeup Part 3. This is the third and final installment of the series covering the history of special effects makeup. And honestly, if we, we have enough to go on to 10 parts, but it, it, it would be too much. <laughs> so, if you haven't listened to Parts 1 and 2 yet, go ahead and pause this episode and come back to it once you have. Because if you don't, then you are not going to understand any of our callbacks. And that would be a shame. Well, yes, it would, Corey. So go ahead and hit stop on those RCA recorders you have, and we'll see you when you return. What are you doing? Oh, oh I'm, I'm waiting for them to come back from the other parts. Yeah, that's not really how it works, man. This isn't done in real time. Plus, the people who already listened to the first two parts are still here. And those who paused it will come back to the spot they left off on. Oh... Well, we should start, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Now? Uh, now. Okay, okay. Welcome back to Cinovations Special Effects Makeup Part 3. Now, on with the show. In the early days of film, Cinovations came fast and often. There wasn't really a filmmaking guidebook or a history of industry precedent to help guide those pioneers. So many of the techniques and tradecraft were developed on the fly through experiment and trial and error. Oftentimes, with those innovative techniques, form followed function. As they worked out in real time, how to tell stories on film. For those pioneering filmmakers, there was no book because they were the ones writing. New generations of creators, whether they learn from their predecessors or not, write their own chapters. The love of film as a medium of expression compels these artisans to find exciting new ways to create cinovations. Talking movies every week. Talking movies every week. Cinovation. 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 Hosted by Jeff and Corey. If you were a movie-going audience member at the turn of the 20th century, there wasn't a whole lot about movies that you wouldn't consider magic. The illusion of motion through still images, regardless of the subject they depicted, would have been enough to leave you awestruck. As audiences became more accustomed to the medium, filmmakers continued to chase the audience's reaction by pushing the limits of what seemed possible. One such cinematic magician wasn't content with the novelty of a moving still life. He wanted to tell stories that sent his audiences to far-off places. And in 1902, self-taught film pioneer and auteur George Millais did just that when he took audiences on a trip to the moon. With this 14-minute film, Millais pioneered narrative filmmaking while also making the first science fiction movie. He channeled his creative approach of experimental film work into story-supporting special effects and created one of the first and most recognizable special effects makeup applications ever captured on film. Corey, this film started Billy Corgan, right? Uh, sort of. Sort of? Did they... <laughs> the Smashing Pumpkins did a... During his bald era? Yeah. When, they... he had just yeah. Got... when he just shaved his head? Although I believe he wears a top hat. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, he does, so yeah. you don't really see that he's so bald. Okay. But 
How did he go back in time? They did they did an homage to this particular film ah. as a music video, I think is what you're referring to. Ah. Yeah. Every movie fan, or at least anyone who has seen the music video for Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins, has seen the iconic Man in the Moon. With a bullet-shaped rocket struck in his eye, the Man in the Moon is a visual centerpiece of Malay's film A Trip to the Moon. And if you've heard any of our previous episodes about old Hollywood, then you know they actually shot that actor in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't think that's true. Actually, believe it or not, in this case, the actor was unharmed. It's likely because, and there's not a lot of documentation on this film, but it's likely that the man in the moon is George Malays himself. So this isn't like a Lon Chaney hook and wire self-harm for his art situation? Well, the makeup doesn't look particularly comfortable, but no, George made it through unharmed. The effect was achieved with a combination of grease paint and globs of creams and paste atop an early form of prosthetic face mask. And it was in the shape of a giant circle. Kind of like a special effects lemon meringue pie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A giant circle of glop with his face in the middle. And instead of foam rubber, which wouldn't exist for another 27 years, the mask base was likely made from the same cardboard that they used to create the rocket ship that appears to have plunged into the moon's eye. There were actually two makeup setups used in the shot. One without the rocket... And one with. The action of crashing the rocket into the moon's face was achieved with another one of Malaysia's innovations. A sort of before and after jump cut called the substitution splice. Crude as the materials and techniques were, the effect is still regarded as an effective and impressive bit of movie magic. Audiences of the time agreed. Other filmmakers now saw what was possible and began dreaming up ways in which they could accomplish incredible visual feats of their own. That spirit of trying to figure out how to accomplish those incredible visual feats weaves its way throughout cinematic history. Like stage magicians, those making magic on film were not easily parted with the secrets behind their techniques. In Malaise's time, he and other filmmakers were sort of one-person studios, whose success was predicated on what they could do that others couldn't. By the time we get to Lon Chaney, stagecraft and makeup were a tightly held currency for actors. And once studios developed their own makeup departments, the craft became a narrow field of professionals. Knowledge was funneled only to a select few. But like all mediums of art, trailblazers like Malays and Chaney find their own path. Half a century after Malaise dropped the proverbial mic on special effects makeup, another self-taught dreamer, Dick Smith, (laughs) would have to find his own methods to set himself apart, other than the fact that his name is Dick Smith, and cement his place in special effects makeup history. Smith grew up 2,800 miles east of the Hollywood bubble in a town just north of New York City called Larchmont. It was here. Did you say Large Mart? Larchmont. Oh, Larchmont. Larchmont. Large okay. Marge. They meant Large Mart, like in Chuck. <laughs> Large Mart. Large Mont. Lar- Larchmont. Larchmont? 
I don't know. I'm sorry, people that live in Larchmont. It was here in his basement workshop where he'd perfect his own innovative methods for recreating the monster makeup looks from the films he loved. But before he'd begin his journey as the future of makeup artistry, Dick Smith was very close to a completely different discipline. Math. Smith never considered himself very artistic. Ironic now considering his legacy, he admired others who could draw detailed images and cartoons, but never developed traditional artistic skills himself. Kind of like Walt Disney. Remember when we talked about Walt right. Disney and how Walt Disney could not fucking draw? He was an idea man, man. Yeah, he was like the idea man who just hired people to draw. Yeah. He couldn't even draw his own fucking signature. Yeah, he needed uh, Ib Iwerks to do that. For any questions about that, go back to the Al's Useless Hollywood Facts on Disney. Smith did, however, have a unique ability. He referred to it as structural visualization. Essentially, in his mind, he could see and rationalize space in three dimensions, something researchers in more recent times believe may be linked to a form of dyslexia. Well before he discovered the world of special effects makeup, Smith felt that his big-ass 3D brain was best suited for mathematics. While studying at Branford College at Yale in the early years before World War II, Smith realized quickly that math was not his future. After a disastrous semester learning calculus from a professor that Smith considered, quote, an idiot, Dick swore off math for life and shifted his studies to the next most obvious choice. Was this before or after Smith walked up on stage and smacked the shit out of Chris Rock? <laughs> uh, it was well before. Oh, shit. This is Dick Smith, yeah. not Will Smith. See, he has to get to the Oscars first, and he's not yeah, even okay. into makeup yet. So, Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't slapping people, Jeff. He was picking his next college major. And what was that, Corey? Antarctic geopolitics? Close. Dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a minute. You mean to tell me that two of the most influential makeup artists to come out of the mid-century... John Chambers and Dick Smith. Yeah, those guys. You're telling me both started out as dentists? Sort of, yeah. Chambers was a military dentist, and Smith was pre-med with a focus in dentistry before finally majoring in zoology. But yeah, they, they both studied molars. Who knew dentistry was the gateway drug for special effects makeup. You hear that, kids? If you want to make it in Hollywood, first become a dentist. Or at least dabble a bit in dentistry, right? As Smith was changing gears on his education, he came across a book on theater makeup techniques entitled Paint, Paste, and Makeup. <laughs> the hell of a title. <laughs> Using his 3D brain power... He realized that the book would be a lot easier to read if he had blue and red tinted glasses. <laughs> I don't think it's that kind of 3D, Jeff. Oh, yeah, you're right, right. So he realized that because of his 3D brain power, he could visualize exactly how the makeup applications worked in conjunction with an actor's real face. He immediately began experimenting, recreating the monsters from his favorite films, like Lon Chaney's Hook and Wire, Hunchback, and Wally Westmore's makeup design from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All right. That's a mention for the Westmore family in all three parts of this series. We cannot fucking escape that Hollywood makeup nepotism, Jeff. 
I think the word you're looking for is dynasty. Oh, fucking Westmores. By the way, after we leave this, I'm going to go and I think dynasty is now showing on Peacock. <laughs> is the, the new dynasty? No, I like the old the dynasty. Old, the old dynasty. Wait, which is the one where they shot JR? Is that dynasty or is that Knott's Landing? Uh, or is that like something about Texas? Is Dynasty it Dallas? About Dallas? Dallas? I think or is it Dallas. Falcon Crest? No, I think it's Dallas. Okay. They shot JR in Dallas. Who was in Remington Steel? Um, Pierce Brosnan? Pierce, so James Bond was in Remington Steel? Yes. Great. Now, who was in Falcon Crest? Beats the shit out of me. Okay, let's move on. Anyway. Smith, in those early days, however, didn't have actors to test out his techniques. So he would make himself up as these monsters and then prowl the Yale campus terrifying the other students. Nah, what a dick, Smith. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it, I mean, it would have been pretty funny as long as you weren't, you know, one of the ones on the other end of him jumping around a corner with like a mangled looking face. <laughs> you know, I saw somebody on TikTok uh, doing this, only they were dressed as the uh, as Pennywise. Yeah. And they were jump, jumping around dressed like Pennywise. Kind of the same thing. Invented by Dick Smith. Yeah. I just hope that he didn't fuse the makeup to his face with industrial strength glue like Wally did to Fred March for Mr. Hyde. Right? Fucking Wally Westmore. Rookie mistake. And if you don't know that story, go and see Cinovations Part 2 of this story. Right. While he was figuring things out, I'm sure Dick had his ups and downs. But I didn't find any info on him maiming himself. The university newspaper did write a story about his makeup exploits on campus. They called him the Branford Terror, though they kept his real identity a mystery. His newfound talent for special effects makeup caught the attention of the theater department, and soon Dick found himself applying makeup for various theater productions at Yale. From then, Smith was hooked. After graduation, he served in the armed forces during World War II. When he returned home in 1945, Smith landed a job 18 miles south of his hometown as a makeup director for a fledgling studio trying to make its mark on the new medium of television, WNBC, in New York. Smith worked at NBC from 1945 to 1959. And for most of his tenure at the studio, he was met with stone-faced secrecy from his contemporaries. Dick was talented. <laughs> yeah, he was. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But professionally, he was more or less on his own. He crafted his makeup designs without the pretense of tradition from the basement workshops of his home in Larchmont, which he'd continue for most of his career. Because his methods and techniques were self-taught, Smith approached his makeup applications from a more unconventional perspective of intuitive problem solving. One such instance of Smith's ingenuity was in regard to foam latex applications. Through the 50s, Hollywood's use of foam latex had moved ridiculously to the use of large single appliances and full-face pull-on masks. Smith saw two major flaws with the use of larger applications. One was the utter lack of an actor's expression to shine through the makeup. And the other was with the foam rubber itself. So you're saying he just didn't like things big? No. Dick Dick didn't like big Dick things. Dick was not a size queen. When a makeup artist creates a custom latex appliance, they first start with a positive plaster cast of the actor's actual head. 
The prosthetic extensions are then sculpted onto the plaster cast. And then a negative mold is made of the whole thing in order to create the foam latex pieces. The problem, Smith realized, was that the foam latex would reduce in size compared to the original sculpted pieces. The larger the piece, the more dramatic the size reduction. To solve this shrinkage issue, Smith swore off public pools. No. <laughs> no, he actually devised a new technique of creating three smaller overlapping latex applications that, when blended together, gave the coverage of a larger full-face application, but allowed for far more movement and expression on an actor's face. <clears throat> Initially, other more traditional makeup artists in the field scoffed at Dick's new method, but the results were undeniable. And in time, the overlapping smaller applications would become the industry standard, still used today. Even John Chambers used a version of the segmented application approach for his honorary Oscar-winning Planet of the Apes makeup. The television credits that helped Smith hone his craft include turning Laurence Olivier into a leprosy victim for the 1959 Emmy Award-winning TV movie The Moon and Sixpence. Another fantastic title, by the way. <laughs> I like when Sixpence is none the richer. Mm -hmm. Olivier remarked to Smith about the makeup that it was so convincing, it does the acting for me. Smith also worked on a 1961 Twilight Zone ripoff called Way Out that was hosted by Roald Dahl. For the show, he created makeup looks such as a man with disappearing facial features, as well as his take on Lon Chaney's hunchback makeup for a story that involved the disfigured makeup becoming permanently fixed to an evil actor's face. Ooh, just like the good old days of Hollywood. Art imitating life, Corey. Before making the jump to film, Smith did something that few in his field were willing to do. Rapping with DJ Jazzy Jeff? No. Telling us that parents just don't understand? No. How about openly confessing to being a communist at the McCarthy hearings? And risk losing his career to an unsubstantiated witch hunt? Hell no, Jeff. He shared the secrets to his techniques. In 1965... A decade after McCarthy lost all credibility, by the way. And a decade after What's-His-Name lost the Majestic to the McCarthy hearings. Remember that? Yeah. Remember that? Smith published a book entitled Dick Smith's Do-It-Yourself Monster Makeup Handbook. Great title. Finally, we get a great title. <laughs> kind of puts it all out there, you know? Yeah. You know exactly what you're getting with that book. Dick Smith... Wasn't just writing the next chapter of special effects makeup history. He was literally writing a whole new book. Future special effects makeup icons like Rick Baker would credit Smith's book for getting them into film makeup in very much the same way that paint, paste, and makeup inspired Smith. While Smith was sharing the technique he'd innovated during his time in the world of television, his most innovative methods... By the 60s, Smith had made the jump to the big screen. Larger production budgets and longer shooting schedules gave Smith a better platform to shine. In 1969, Smith began production on the Dustin Hoffman film Little Big Man. In 
Yeah. Dick Smith doing Little, Little Big Man. Yeah, Dick, Dick worked on Little Big Man. Uh, in which Hoffman's character was to be age 121 years old. Hmm. Smith had done an aging design for the TV vampire soap opera Dark Shadows earlier in the decade, and that proved to be good practice for Little Big Man. However, the bar for aging Hoffman, well beyond his years for a film, was much higher. Now, if you know nothing about the world of film makeup, like us, you've still probably heard that making an actor appear older than they are especially decades older, is one of the hardest makeup looks to do convincingly. I mean, they did it in Benjamin Button. Yeah, based off of the techniques that Dick Smith invented, right? Dick Smith! Wow! The key is not necessarily in the facial prosthetics, though they usually help. The key to old age makeup is in how you paint the actor's face and those applications. To help him figure out the best method, Smith called a longtime makeup artist, Roy Ashton, who was well known for the horror makeup looks that he had done in the 50s and 60s for the British production company Hammer Films. Smith was inspired to contract Ashton after seeing his impressive age makeup on the 1959 film, The Man Who Could Cheat Death. After consulting with Ashton, Smith developed a painting technique used widely today called OAS, which stands for Old Age Stipple. OAS simulates the randomized discoloration of skin like old age spots and surface capillaries that naturally occur as we age. The new technique was incredibly convincing and established Smith as a new titan of makeup for the big screen. His OAS method landed him jobs aging up Marlon Brando for his Oscar-winning role of Don Vito Corleone in The Godfather, and Max von Sydow as the old Father Marin in The Exorcist. Dick created multiple aging looks to progressively age David Bowie in 1982 for the film The Hunger. Smith would win an Academy Award for turning F. Murray Abraham into an elderly Antonio Salieri for 1984's Amadeus and earned his second nomination for aging Jack Lemmon 20 years for the film Dad in 1989. Smith would go on to use his aging techniques in Death Becomes Her and Forever Young in 1992 and even helped create Robin Williams' gender and age-defying transformation for Miss Doubtfire. Interesting to note, on The Godfather, Marlon Brando refused to wear latex applications. And so the aging effect was created entirely with Smith's OAS and the help of some dental plumpers inside Marlon Brando's mouth to give him the appearance of jowls. The challenge of aging an actor without the help of prosthetic applications would open up more opportunities for makeup design. Facial additions could be used in smaller areas, like sagging eyelids, or only as needed, as in progressively aging a character, while allowing more of the actor's performance to really shine through the makeup. Dick wasn't content with just being Hollywood's go-to master of old-age makeup. And films like The Godfather and The Exorcist let Smith push the limits of makeup further than they'd ever been pushed before. For The Godfather, Smith created the first bleeding makeup application by hiding a squib and blood pack under a false forehead latex appliance. When the squib detonated, it gave the appearance of blood pouring from a fresh bullet wound. 
This was the first real step toward what we now consider special effects makeup. Prior to Smith, special effects makeup was primarily just turning actors into creatures. But Smith paved the way for makeup effects to go beyond just what was glued to an actor's face. For The Exorcist, Smith once again collaborated with another makeup artist. Though, this time, instead of another statesman of the trade, Smith sought a young, up-and-coming artist who had impressed him with photos of makeup and false limbs that he had made in his kitchen that he attached to a fan letter. The then 18-year-old Rick Baker accepted Smith's invitation to his Larchmont home workshop. Four years later, Baker would be brought on as Smith's assistant to help troubleshoot how to combine practical and makeup effects to pull off some of the more grotesque visuals for Linda Blair's possessed child character of Reagan. In that same Larchmont basement, the two devised a tube system that would be hidden in the body double of Linda Blair's mouth. This tube system would eject the famous pea soup vomit across the set. Smith devised a chemical formula that, when applied to the foam latex on Blair's stomach, would produce an effect of swelling blisters. And for their piece de resistance, they used the prosthetic applications and a mold from Blair's positive plasters cast to make up a fake head and torso that was an exact match to Blair as Reagan. Was it Reagan or Reagan? I read it as the president, uh, Reagan. They then attached the head to a rotating motor hidden in the fake torso to create the now iconic effect of Reagan's 360-degree head spin. The endorsement of Smith and the word of the incredible effects they were creating on The Exorcist was enough for director Larry Cohen to hire Baker to create the mutant infant for his film It's Alive. Baker's career was about to skyrocket. Dick Smith would continue to work until 1999 and would be the first makeup artist awarded a Lifetime Achievement Oscar in 2011. But his impact was more than just what he created for the screen. He is credited with developing the first foam latex bodysuits and prosthetics. He devised a bladder system under thin layers of latex that could be inflated or deflated to give the appearance of movement under the skin a trick that Baker would use in his Oscar-winning transformation makeup for An American Werewolf in London. Smith created collapsible corpse bodies, and he reinvented the molding process by designing a collapsible mold core that eliminated the seams created by using traditional plaster cast mold. And so much more. In the later part of his life, Smith continued to impart his methods and techniques to the next generation of FX makeup artists. Artists like Rick Baker and Stan Winston would carry on Smith's methods and pass them onto their protégés until nearly every standard method was delivered from Dick Smith's playbook. Dick Smith almost single-handedly contributed more innovations to the art of special effects makeup than any other individual in the history of film, and that is why he is recognized as the godfather of special effects makeup. Through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, while Smith was still active, the torch was being passed. Audiences' lust for blood and gore drove the popularity of newer, more edgy artists. The work for developing special effects makeup was also beginning to break out of the studios and become their own independent companies that sold their expertise to multiple studios. 
artist that grew under the tutelage of Chambers and Smith were beginning to write their own chapters. Their independence from the studios raised the public profile of special effects makeup artists and turned many into cult icons of the industry. Their newfound fandom also created a bit of a friendly feud of one-upsmanship between the new icons of special effects makeup. None more entertaining for audiences than the one between Rick Baker and Stan Winston. Baker cut his teeth under Dick Smith. <clears throat> While Winston was trained under the Hollywood wing of John Chambers and his disciple, Tom Berman. While they came from different camps, they did end up on the same makeup team early in their respective careers. For the 1974 TV movie, The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, where they had to put those Dick Smith lessons to the test, aging Cicely Tyson. From this point, their careers diverged and became a series of alternating milestones. In 1981, Baker made the first leap ahead when he combined makeup, progressive prosthetics, inflatable latex, reverse hair effects, puppeteering, and more to create the incredibly realistic transformation from man to werewolf for the film An American Werewolf in London. His work would earn him the first official Oscar for makeup, an award category created in response to the industry backlash when the Academy refused to give an honorary award to British makeup artist Christopher Tucker for his incredible work on The Elephant Man the previous year. Baker's fellow nominee that year was Stan Winston. For his nomination, Winston would develop a full-face transformation in the film Heartbeeps, using the lesser-used material gelatin, pushing the boundaries of the material further than it had been before. This is opposed to, you know, the seven other times that he pushed before. <laughs> then in 1984, Winston would design multiple FX makeup applications, as well as full-scale animatronic cyborgs for James Cameron's The Terminator. And then followed that up in 1986, winning Best Visual Effects Oscar for his work on Aliens. Baker created an army of dancing zombies for Michael Jackson's Thriller video. An alien in Starman, a Bigfoot in Harry and the Hendersons, multiple characters for Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall in Coming to America, Gorillas in the Mist, The Rocketeer, before working under his own company brand, Cinovation Studios. Hey, wait. He, he, his, his company's name is Cinovation Studios. That's convenient. Uh, not for us. I think you're supposed to be no. trying to brand Cinovations. Yeah. This will be the last Cinovations. <laughs> no, he, he, uh, he started then working under his own, his own company, Cinovation Studios, uh, starting with the 1994 film Wolf. Back and forth, they'd go pushing each other to be better, to make the industry better. Baker and Winston's hands were all over the world of special effects and special effects makeup. Their generation helped revolutionize both disciplines as independent art forms and intertwined movie magic. Out from under Baker and Winston, we get artists like Greg Canham, who worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mrs. Doubtfire with Dick Smith, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and innovated the use of silicone applications. Steve Johnson, who created the many ghosts and ghouls for Ghostbusters, Creature and aging looks for Big Trouble in Little China, Poltergeist, and the underwater aliens of The Abyss. Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis, 
They would branch off out from Winston to form their own company that is responsible for the sandworms and its kills and tremors, as well as a handful of alien sequels. Tim Allen's transformation into Santa Claus and were the first to use fully silicone body doubles for Death Becomes Her. From that group, we get another group of Cinnovators, like Christian Tinsley, who developed a process for temporary tattoo transfers that can go well beyond the look of traditional ink and skin. His transfers can be printed to resemble almost any cut, bruise, scrape, or scab. And they can be customized to look healed at various stages to correspond to the timeline of the film. For The Passion of the Christ, timing was tight on the production and lead Jim Caviezel needed hundreds of cuts and slashes across his entire body. Christian developed a 3D transfer technique using a gelled adhesive. They were faster to make, didn't need molds, and were self-adhesive. He also invented a tattoo shirt. The list really goes on and on. And honestly, we would have to make so many more parts to really encapsulate the full story of the history of special effects makeup. From the earliest days of film running through camera, makeup was there. We owe a lot of the magic of the movies to those artisans that created the amazing visuals that have captivated audiences for over a century. From Max Factor, the Westmores, Lon Chaney and Jack Pierce, to the revolutionaries John Chambers and Dick Smith, and their protégés Rick Baker, Stan Winston, and every artist that has picked up a makeup brush or molded a latex prosthetic in the name of cinema. We salute you and your many, many, Innovations. Talking movies every week. Talking movies every week. Innovation. 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 Hosted by Jeff and Corey. I really think it's good that Dick Smith worked with a lot of latex. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Dick worked a lot. Thank you for listening to Cinovations Special Effects Makeup Part 3. We hope you've enjoyed this entire series. And if you'd like to join the conversation, please follow us on social media, on Instagram at Switch the Envelope, or on Twitter. I mean, are, we people, are people still going on Twitter, Corey? Uh, I mean, not for very long, but... I mean, uh, if you... There, there's if, still some there. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, go to Switch Envelope. We, we now have a Mastodon, just in case Twitter implodes. Yeah, I mean, Mastodon, and if you want to, maybe, should we get a TikTok? Maybe we should get a TikTok. Maybe we should get a TikTok. You know, just uh, stay tuned. Of course, you can always go to switchtheenvelope.com for all your Switch the Envelope needs. You know, or they can go to their preferred podcast player and hit the subscribe button. Or if they're listening to us right now, they probably already did that. They, they may not have hit the subscribe button. That's true. And they true. should do that. That's true. Yeah, subscribe. Of course, the most important thing, tell a friend. And we'll see you later, Switches. Bye, Switches! Switch the Envelope is filmed before a live studio audience at the studios of NBC. <laughs> Kevin Eubanks is our band leader, and so is the guy from the E Street Band. Max something? Max Max Weinberg? We Max Weinberg. Yeah, yeah. Max Weinberg. And the Max Weinberg 7. Yeah, he, he does our theme. Every he week. does our theme, and uh, yeah, so Switch the Envelope is... Written and produced by Jeff and Corey. Switched in the Envelope is a Riff Lab production, and it is mixed and mastered at Studio 85. Sit, baby, sit.
Good dog. <laughs>